the five biggest emitting years for greenhouse gases were the last five years. I don't think we're ever more than about a few months away from the next climate crisis. It should and it needs to drive change. Well, I would love to see carbon neutral aisles in grocery stores or, or areas that are dedicated to regenerative, sustainable food products. A carbon neutral or a low carbon set of, uh, of food aisles would be fantastic. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. I don't know about you, but I find that increasingly I do think about my carbon footprint. You know, when it's time to eat dinner, I don't always slow down and wonder about my carbon footprint. But ever so often, something reminds me I should. Well, I have a, a guest today that's got an interesting perspective, and he's certainly paying attention to carbon footprint. And he's a CEO of Neutral Foods, Marcus Lovell Smith. Uh, hey, Marcus, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Roger, very nice to be here. Very nice to meet you. Looking forward to it. You know, Marcus, right off the bat, when you talk about Food being neutral, that's a new term. Mm -hmm. You know, you're sort of the, what, the Switzerland of foods then, uh, that uh, you're, you're, you're not on one side or the other in a war per se, but you're neutral. You claimed, you claimed a territory that I haven't heard anybody else claim yet. Well, that's right. I mean, we are a carbon neutral food company. From the very first day we started, we were determined to be Carbon neutral, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that and how we did it. Um, but it's kind of curious. Neutral, of course, you would never normally name a company called neutral, and it was uh, all the trademarks, of course, were available to us because I mean, I think ten years ago, you wouldn't. Now people associate neutral with carbon neutral uh, and the importance of it is, but but maybe ten years ago, neutral is like neutral or bland or tepid. So anyway, we were, we were able to trademark neutral, and it's very important to who we are um, because we are creating uh, carbon neutral foods, most specifically in the dairy and beef area, which of course is important because those are the, you know, 80% of agricultural greenhouse gas emissions come from the beef and, and, and dairy sectors. So that, that's, why we're, that's why we're here and that's what we're doing. But how do you get that vision? I mean, I, you know, I, I think I get it. And we talk about trying to look at um, agriculture production being regenerative. And we do have people that are starting to pay attention to what, you know, being carbon, you know, smart and, and mitigating kind of the impacts that we're seeing from carbon in the, in the atmosphere. But I'm curious, at, at what point does that become a vision to pursue? Uh, you know, I'm always, I always wonder about the point of inspiration. You know, is there a, a spot where you're having a beer with a friend or you're you can't sleep and you're up having a cup of coffee and when reading Wendell Berry or something and think, you know, Eureka, this is what I need to do. I mean, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, uh, we should definitely talk about Wendell Berry at some point on this podcast because, he, um, uh, you know, in terms of visionaries, I can't think of a greater one than him. Uh, and he certainly influenced me. I can't. I can't pretend to be the uh, instigator or the early visionary here, though I have incrementally grown my way into the vision. And it's incredibly important: the decarbonization of a of American agriculture, the understanding that American agriculture does have an enormous carbon footprint, um, and that we can do things uh, about it. I think for 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 me, uh, twenty years ago when I first came to America, I. I became a dairy farmer. I was a, uh, a family farm and, uh, and I moved to it and I ran the family farm for three or four years. And that was a huge education for me, having not been a farmer. I would hesitate to even call myself a farmer after only four years doing it. I then went, went off and did um, some other thing. I still live on the farm and I don't run cows day to day, but it was a huge education. And then in the last few years, running neutral has been a fantastic privilege because it's it's kind of focused me and uh, around the impact that agriculture can have 
And also, by the way, the positive in, uh, impact that agriculture can have. I mean, of the great five pillars, if you like, I'm already straying from my topic or straying from the question, the great five pillars of climate change, which is transportation, or, or sorry, climate impact, I should say, which is transportation, buildings, uh, energy, manufacturing, and then, of course, food and agriculture. It's also the, the, the one pillar that also has the, has the potential to sequester or pull carbon naturally out of it. It's a natural system out of the... So though it has a big impact, it also has a, a huge opportunity to positively affect climate, to positively affect biodiversity, which I think is, is so important. And I'm frequently talking as much about biodiversity as I am about climate. Anyway, the vision wasn't originally mine. I am so happy to be associated with that vision, though, because I think it's incredibly important how we eat, what we eat and how we eat, and the food we choose are incredibly important to how we're going to manage climate going forward. So what, what came first? The, um, having the base of, of like the agriculture, uh, uh, certain farms that you were going to try to help them, or was it a, a marketing perspective that you'd look at products uh, that that could be marketed to consumers that would uh, appreciate, you know, purchasing products that were carbon neutral? I'm I'm trying to get it. You know, you know, which comes first? You you start with the farm and say, how do we market, or do you start with the market and saying, how do we grow it? I think I start with the market because that's that's my my background and that's what it even most affected me. I think a lot of it comes from the science. Science is terribly important to our company uh, in understanding in detail the carbon footprint at every level of the uh, of the farm. I mean, so so we work with um, the perhaps the seminal expert in this area, Greg Toma, who's reviewed I think over five hundred farms in America, trying to understand where the impact occurs. And with beef and with dairy, most of them impact occurs on the farm, and to a lesser extent occurs in the transportation, the processing. Uh, the retail, even the post-consumer waste. And we mo we've modeled all of that. We've modeled all of that and understand. And therefore, something like uh, two-thirds of that impact, uh, maybe slightly more, but uh, I think nearly over 70% of the impact comes from on-farm. So, so as a company, that's really the work we do. So we work with dairy farmers, uh, specifically, uh, and, and beef ranches, but but significantly with dairy farmers to mitigate, reduce, uh, and sequester, uh, mitigate and reduce their impact, sequester carbon on a range of different interventions. And if you like, we wrap that benefit up in our product and we sell it as a as a carbon neutral product because we've offset through our own projects, through our own, and what we internally call insets. We've offset that to work with within our own supply uh, supply shed or supply lines as we call them. Hmm. So our, our job is to work with dairy farmers to mitigate, reduce, and sequester uh, and, and ultimately sequester carbon. Um, and we do that, and we call those insets um, because we're working within our own supply lines, and consumers are expecting from us to work, uh, to reduce our own uh, impact. I mean, I think 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, consumers were reasonably okay with offsets and offsets are fine and they're a start and they're a reasonable way to start. And in fact, we started our very first carton of milk required an offset. We've rapidly moved to where the majority of the reduction that we create comes from our own projects working with our own farming partners. Now, is it exclusively dairy, or do you have any other commodities that you're involved with? We've focused on dairy initially uh, with whole milk, 2%. Uh, um, we also, um, we, will, we will have a butter pro product. We are introducing a carbon-neutral beef into the sort of food service markets uh, with uh, restaurants and campuses and universities. But the early focus is on, on dairy milk, fluid milk, uh, half and half, 2% whole uh, through stores like Whole Foods, Sprouts, Targets, uh, imperfect market, misfit markets, uh, some of the e-commerce sites. Um, and so we're, we're selling that or those group of products through about 2,500 stores across America today. And how broad a distribution do you have? 
Well, two and a half thousand stores is a, is a reasonable footprint. It's still a, it's still small, mainly through the natural channel, um, through natural uh, cooperatives and uh, Whole Foods and Sprouts, but increasingly through uh, more general retailers. Um, it's an, we're just building an awareness, um, trying trying to trying to allow people to understand that the choices they make in food can make a real difference in climate. And our job is to connect consumers with the work we do on farms is so you, you pull this carton of milk off the shelf and you will have this effect positive effect at the farm level and we can show you what we're doing and then we're trying to make that connection we're still early days it's two and a half thousand stores is still a small number of stores for america but it's uh, but it is a national distribution and and increasingly people are, uh, are aware of the impact that agriculture has and that they can do something about it so if you have a background in marketing you know um Marketing, I always thought, is having what sells rather than selling what you have, which I always thought was more advertising as uh, you're trying to promote it, but but getting into the heads of the consumers. So I'm wondering, in, in your early stages, were you doing much consumer research? Did you have focus groups and, and quantitative studies and that sort of thing to say, gee, if we do this, if we if we produce milk in this way and that we are carbon neutral, are you more likely to purchase this product? Uh, did, did you do that sort of research? Well, fundamentally, Roger, it comes from a from a, a sort of a vision that this is the right thing to do. This is really important to us. I mean, fundamentally, that's why we're doing it. Yes, later on, we've led in a lot of research, but you know, at the start, we, this felt like an important thing to do. But because if you're going to decarbonize American agriculture, you can only really get there through low, lower carbon foods uh, or zero carbon foods in our case. Um, so, yes, we've we've talked to um, consumers a lot since, and we've fine tuned the messages. Um, but fundamentally, it's a personal conviction from both me and the and the team and the investors. That this is an important thing to do. And then what about uh, what about the farmers? Uh, are Farm. you were you finding were you finding farmers that were kind of already committed in this direction, or did you have a fair share of them that you had to convert and help them see why this was going to be worth their while? Uh, this, this, the single best part of my job is spending time with farmers uh, on farms and visiting farms in a wide range of places. It's just. You know, it is a genuine joy. Uh, we have a great farm team. We visit a lot of farms. Um, I don't think we've ever had a bad conversation with uh, a farmer in the sense that we come to the farm with, this is who we are. This is what we're trying to do. We're never going to tell you what to do because, uh, as I've said before, I think that's, that becomes a very short conversation. Um, uh, we find that most farmers have a list often a very long list of projects they would like to do. They are one, I would suggest one of the few groups of, uh, of people that really think multi-generationally. They're always thinking about their children and their grandchildren. They see themselves as stewards. They're not always able to, and in my opinion, they're not always able to be the stewards that they could be because of the constraints of the systems. And, uh, and you, your wonderful series of podcasts, I mean, talk about that a great deal, but the, the systems constrain them. But they have they have these projects, and our our job is to help provide advice and some finance um, to create projects that, that that make a difference. And and nearly all of our projects not only save carbon or reduce the carbon impact, but have a biodiversity element to them. They often have a animal welfare element to them. They might have a nutrient management element to them. So there there are often co benefits with many of the projects that we do. So do you certify your growers and have somebody go out and, and say that make sure that they're doing what they said they were going to do? Well, absolutely. I mean, we we certify that in the sense that we're, we're visiting farms all the time. We're going back to see our projects. Uh, we ourselves are verified by a range of different um, organizations. And then ultimately, we get certified by SCS, which is a it's an organization that looks at our returns on an annual basis and says whether, whether we have indeed um, reduced, mitigated, or sequestered that amount of carbon. So we're, we're heavily audited. I mean, we're, our point of view is we're trying to do good work here, but we're not expecting consumers just to take our word for it. 
So we do have a, a lot of verification certification that surrounds, surrounds us and a lot of uh, scientific advisors. So ultimately the product is certified. Yes, absolutely. So at the farm level, I, I suspect that they're grass-fed rather than, than dry lot, that pastures must play a prominent role in, in your dairies. <laughs> well, our whole milk in retail, in Whole Foods or Sprouts or Target, is organic, it's nutritious, it's delicious. It is from small and medium-sized family dairy farms. It's uh, largely, mostly pasture-raised. That's really where we lean in. Uh, but as an organization, uh, we, we, have a, we have a view that we'll work with all farms and all farmers to reduce. If we can reduce carbon and reduce impact, we'll do it. As an organization, we lean, lean into the pasture-raised, small family, medium-sized family dairy farm, yes. Um, uh, but it's important that we work at all parts, if you like, of the agricultural chain. Now, do you pull them all together? Do they have like, you know, annual meetings or gatherings of, of the, that the farmers can in fact meet the other farmers that are part of the program? Do you do anything like that, like an, almost like an association? Well, we, we've never, that's a great idea, Roger. We've never sort of pulled our farmers together at a single meeting. Uh, we often will appear at a cooperative meeting or if they have a, um, a collection of farmers, farmers meeting for, for one reason or another. And a co-op might, might be a reason, but there might be other reasons why they're meeting or a conference. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll often appear there. Um, and we're appearing at a, a, a or on um, an organic conference coming up, and I forgive me because I've I've lost the name coming up um, in on the west quite soon. And so we're 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 often meeting farmers individually, but we're also meeting them as groups. Yes. And how many states uh, are producing for you? Well, uh, the projects we have at the moment, I think, our projects we have projects in California with Oregon, Washington, New Hampshire. We have projects in Minnesota. We have projects in. Wisconsin and a few others, but I'll, um, I mean, ultimately I'd like us to do projects in, in, in every single dairy state, but it's going to take us a while to do that. And then, then with the farmers, you're out seeing them quite a bit. Is, is there some sort of, you know, regular communications or feedback on what the, how the organization's doing or what you're learning about the, the consumption or even new practices, perhaps? Um, Great. Just a great point. I mean, we, we, we have a um, we have a blog. We have a website, eatneutral.com, where we're uh, we publish quite a lot of this. Um, we're learning the whole time. We learn as much from the farmers as as as, as I hope they learn from us. Uh, we're doing a range of interventions from solid liquid separators in manure um, uh, to some solar sort of panel work. Um, to uh, various uh, feed supplements we're looking at. We have various trials and on ongoing projects with different feed supplements to reduce, in this case, the enteric, the rumen-based methane that's coming out of the cow's stomach, um, which is now regarded as really quite a significant contributor uh, to climate change. That, that methane coming from ruminants from the, from, from the cow's stomach is, is significant. We've got a bunch of projects there. Um, silver pasture, the, the combination of, uh, of trees and pasture. We've got some riparian buffer projects where we're seeding um, uh, stream beds and river beds with, uh, uh, with trees. Um, and, you know, we've got, you know, there's probably 12 plus different interventions we're working on. And, and then the, at the end result of this is, um, do you, have, do you have milk? What are the other products? Cheese or yogurts or and what are the? We're not the there yet. We're not there yet. I mean, milk is an fluid. Milk alone is an enormous market, and we're we're still a very small company. Um, we'd like to make more inroads uh, and get more awareness around uh, neutral the brand, our brand neutral in in fluid milk. Um, we will be in butter shortly. Uh, we will be in some of these other products. We'll, you'll you'll see us in the big staples. You'll see us in the big staples uh, around dairy and around beef because that's, as as I said earlier on, eighty percent of agricultural impact comes from from animal agriculture. So that's really where we're where we're focused. 
Um, so you won't see us in in sort of smaller discretion. I'm not not saying there's anything against the smaller discretionary high end products, but they really just don't have the climate impact that uh, beef and dairy do. Um, but if you're going to make change in agriculture, if you're going to make a dent in some of this impact, you have to be in beef and dairy. You have that's because 93 percent of American households still have dairy. They may have oat milk, they may have almond milk, but still have have milk in their refrigerator, households have milk in their refrigerators. So that's where you need to be. That's where Americans are. That's what they're doing. That's what they're eating. So let's tackle um, dairy and beef in a positive way. And let's work with farmers, not against farmers. Let's work with with farmers to change uh, and mitigate. And I'm a sort of big believer in, um, you know, land sharing rather than land sparing. And that, that whole argument about working, you know, that farms can indeed be great sources of biodiversity as well. Um, and we're doing some exciting projects where we're overseeding pastures with tannin-rich forages, some very experimental work here. And I think we're a, we're a total uh, uh, leader in this particular narrow area, um, overseeding pastures with a, with a range of tannin-rich um, forages um, to, because it's that tannin that can potentially has a uh, suppressive effect suppressive effect on the on the room and the root and the meth and method mm-hmm. bacteria in in the rumen but but it's incredibly exciting because we're actually making a much more diverse pasture so we're creating a much so as an example roger we've got um large plots of land in in eastern oregon where we're working um with a fantastic farmer up there on 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 san juan and, and san juan which is a uh a legume um, has really been pushed out by the monoculture of alfalfa, but it's, an, but it's a legume. Uh, it doesn't necessarily deliver quite the yields, particularly in the early years, but I think it can actually, I think it can rival the yields of alfalfa. But we're, we're bringing that in because it, because it has a high tannin content and it potentially has this suppressive effect. But also, guess what? It's a, it's a, ma- in the, it's a massive pollinator, an, mm. an early pollinator, whereas alfalfa is not. So you got all of these extra effects. So what I love about this work is that whenever we're doing something related to climate and carbon, we're almost always doing something that relates to biodiversity, animal welfare, nutrient management. Even even the thorny subjects around rural equity all get sort of blended in here. So we, we it's a big. So neutral has a huge ambition. Because we think it can make a, a big difference, but it just. By the way, I've just. But I've just given you an example of it. it's an even bigger ambition in terms of how how much we can have in other areas. You know, there's so much more concern when we've had these, uh, you know, fires and and high temperatures. Um, you know, Arizona had uh, thirty days in a row of 105 plus, and you know, and, and that sort of thing. I wonder whether you will see any impact as there as there's uh, growing repercussions from related to climate and this heat that that you would just find that more consumers are going to be thinking about carbon neutral as they start accepting the fact that well maybe this is for real and they never talked about mitigation before but if mitigation is to try to have it be not quite as bad as it's as it's been lately then they may be all for mitigating actions and looking for products is there anything happening there that would suggest that it has an impact on demand for the products? Yeah, I think it's. I think about that all all the time, um, and I don't think about it necessarily in a positive way. I think, and you're right. We've had you know the five hottest years on record were the last five years, the the five uh, biggest emitting years for greenhouse gases were the last five years, for hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, so. And we're never more than a few months away. This is this is what what I mean by feeling. Co- this is a complicated issue. I don't think we're ever more than about a few months away from the next climate crisis. So it's constantly being re- reminded, and 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 and, I, and I'm hoping that that will affect change. My change in things that they hit at me, how I change, how I live, how the decisions I make, and and everyone. And and I do hope it'll make uh, people think about. Products like neutral, but not exclusively, obviously, but products like neutral and others. And I really do hope it does. At the same time, I feel bereft that we are in this constant cycle of climate crisis. But at the same time, 
I think it, 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 it should and it needs to drive change. Have you seen it yet? I mean, have you, uh, again, we finished a summer that's, and that's not quite finished, but it's been very, very tough. And we've had all these, six, and as you pointed out, the years we've had of extreme heat. And if this go, keeps going on, do you, do you expect that that's going to uh, increase demand for products like yours that are spelling out what you're doing to try to mitigate the impacts of carbon? Yeah. I do. I really do. And it's the responsibility for companies like ours to deliver yeah. to deliver real change. So, so we have a huge responsibility to, to show to consumers that they are going to make a difference through these products because consumers, quite rightly, uh, are very skeptical. And we, we as, are as open as we possibly can. I mean, I think, you know, everything we do, we're, we're absolutely transparent about. And there's, no, and there's not a single person in the company doesn't believe in the vision of what we're trying to do here. But so where you market the product then, too, plays into this, because there are some stores, like you mentioned, the uh, co-op stores, cooperatives, and and some of the natural food stores, and, and maybe Whole Foods and, uh, and, and a few others, that they may already have a higher percentage of their of their clientele that are very very concerned already and i'm you know making a broad non-educated guess here because uh i'm just assuming that uh, and maybe the assumption's wrong so challenge me if it's if i'm off track here that those places where you may be concentrating right now might be kind of leading the charge but eventually it'll be growing and be more and more awareness in in other supermarket chains not just these that are focused on you know, natural foods and co-op and organic and so forth. You're right, and that's that's why we started in in those areas. We those consumers are, are naturally more receptive to the to the things we're talking about. But ultimately, I hope the vast majority of Americans will be receptive to it. So other very- than being, you know, other than being on the podcast, and I'm glad to have you on my podcast. How do you get that story out? Uh, you've got a certain amount of real estate in the packaging that you can tell some stories so that you can, um, and I imagine you do to a certain extent, but it's it's somewhat limited. You know, a, a carton of milk has got uh, four sides that, you, and even the top that you can put something on about who your farmers are and what you're doing and why you're doing. But I would imagine that it's a uh, a difficult process to kind of refine it uh, because you've, you've only got so much space and there's some things you have to put on, on a packaging, but um, how do you feel about that, about the, the role of, of your packaging to be able to put the stories of your production practices and what you guys are doing so that the consumer picks it up and glances at it and says, ah, these are, this is the kind of milk I should be buying. It's interesting. I mean, the real estate, of a milk carton is one of the larger real estates in in the grocery store, uh, but I think there's some research that suggests that people spend somewhere between ten and fifteen seconds at the gross at the dairy aisle. So you've got a very short amount of time to to talk to people. There's a lot of information on our packaging, and we're upgrading our packaging, and we're super excited about um, third and fourth quarter of this year when that'll be coming out. But that's that's our primary opportunity to talk to our consumers. And then we we talk to our consumers through social media, through our websites, through um, promotions, through press, um, through interviews, through conferences. But you know, it just takes time for consumer. I mean, it's been we were at thirty stores eighteen months ago. We're now two and a half thousand stores. So um, we've had tremendous growth. But we just need to keep on telling that story and 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 allowing consumers. To to know that, but you know, by making that decision six inches to the left or six inches, six in, inches to the right, pulling the carton off the shelf, that they can then drive change in agriculture. And then we've got a, our responsibility just to show them that we've done that work. Uh, you know, I've been doing some milk research just because I like milk. And so I've been noticing in the last three or four years, I shop at five different stores five different companies that i'll I'll shop at and i'm just fascinated by the milk departments and one of the things i saw more three or four years ago was the uh, almond milk uh, oat milk you know some of some of these things but they seem like they've kind of plateaued they're not they're not 
coming into the space to the extent that I thought they were for a while. One of the things I notice uh, a whole lot more reference to grass fed. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I think that the the grass fed or pasture raised and so forth. Um, in, again, my non scientific surveys just saying there's a whole lot more of of that being described. One of the couple things that are starting to show up that I don't know if you've if looked at these as well, but uh, omega threes, and and uh, it's just kind of like all of a sudden I'm starting to see some some packaging that's identifying omega three milk, and I wonder if you've looked into that at all. Wow, there's so much there. Uh, almond milk, oat milk. I mean, uh, I think these are these are great products. But you know, you mentioned earlier about uh, Greek yogurt uh, and the protein in Greek yogurt. I mean, none of these products have anything like the protein that milk does. Milk, milk is a is a fantastically nu nutritious uh, product. What we want to do is sell the very best milk there is um, from from cows that have been well looked after and farms that have been well respected. You know, I'm a big believer in grass-fed. I'm a huge believer in that. Uh, as I said, we will do work on all farms because it's the, the carbon impacts coming from all farms. But personally, and as an organization, we lean into to pasture-raised and grass-fed. And your final point about omega-3, omega-6, incredibly important. Um, you know, animals that eat live plants versus animals that eat dead plants. It's very different. It, it it shows up in the shows up in the meat. It shows up in the in the in the milk. The ratio between omega three and omega six, which is uh, omega six, is somewhat more suggested that it's somewhat more inflammatory. Um, that ratio should be close to one to one, two to one. Um, but in but in 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 a um, an animal that's been fed. Uh, perhaps only grain. You will see it six. Uh, you'll see um, omega six as a much, much, much higher percentage. And you'll see that whether it's fish, fish farms, poultry, swine, cattle. Um, I think it's fun enough. We're we're doing some really exciting work with a company, a startup, a company in Boston at the moment, looking at the nutritional uh, profile of all of these different milks. And, to, and the, uh, what I would say is the micronutritional profile. And I'd love us to get to a point where you, we could say, you know, uh, a half gallon of our milk is just nutritionally a lot better for you than a half gallon of, a, of another milk. We're not there yet, but we're doing some interesting work there and we, we should be able to publish that this year. I know early on there were people that were drawing attention to the omega threes uh, in, and they were saying that it was connected to organic, but then later they were saying, well, it's because so much more of the organic was just pasture raised, grass fed, because it's kind of like it's so tied to the diet. And apparently, when you are using some grain, if uh, I think flaxseed is is something that can be fed too, that um, helps the omega threes along. Which you know, so it's so interesting. It's like we still got a frontier here on on the nutritional benefits. And, and like you were jumping in and pointing out that milk is high in protein. Um, you know, like a lot of other people, I, I try to go to the gym and work out and pay attention to uh, a little bit on the protein because you got to eat some, have some protein. And rather than necessarily buying protein bars and everything, amazing what you can get just to have a big glass of milk when you've got to kind of keep the protein going all, of, uh, all the time. So, so no, I, I, I'm I, a huge fan. I know milk, milk, milk is a, is is a just the most wonderful product. Do I think overall, in America and in Europe, by the way, that we consume too high a percentage of animal protein? Probably, in the sense I think the number in the US and is something like two hundred and ten pounds of animal product a year per person, which is a staggering amount. And Europe's not far behind that. So what I, what I, what I what I think is 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 an super exciting way to look at it is, you know, what's, what's an appropriate amount of very nutritious animal? As I do think animals is a very important part, which is why, you know, I'm, I'm not critical of, uh, of the plant-based milks at all, because I think they're a proxy. I think they're a way for people to express their climate anxiety. But do I think a well-balanced, appropriate amount of animal protein in a in a well-balanced diet is the way to go. Absolutely, I do. Uh, and uh, But I do think it's probably an overall reduction from that, whatever that number I said, 209, 210 pounds. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, abso absolutely. 
Well, it's interesting too, from a from a marketing standpoint, one of the things that you have in your favor right now is your biggest competition is being attacked every single day. Um, you know, when we started seeing dairy products going downhill for a period of time, people were seeming to really cut back on milk. It was also a time when people were having so much more Coca-Cola and all these sugary drinks. And today, um, everywhere you look, there's uh, stories coming out and advice coming out and podcasts coming out. And they say the one thing you can do for your health is stay away from the sugary drinks. Uh, well, the sugary drinks took consumers away and directly affected reductions in some of the um, some of the milk consumption. So so it it seems to me, Marcus, you're kind of getting a favor there because uh, the the one that's taking up a bigger a lot of liquid space in consumers' stomachs is being attacked night and day in every media you can find. I think, um, yeah, it comes back to this you know, carbon footprint per nutritional unit, if you like, rather than carbon footprint per volume yeah. or calorific yeah. value yeah. or pounds. It's a carbon footprint per nutritional quality of the unit, if you like. And I think, you know, some of these uh, grass-fed pasture-raised farms re really, really deliver on that, on that metric. Well, you're, you're in an, an, an important step then. So you're representing a, a product. You've got farmers that are trying to do the right thing, and you're trying to supply products to consumers. You are supplying products to consumers that are concerned not only about the taste of the milk and all the other nutritional stories that you have to offer, but the fact that you are uh, carbon neutral. And I'm, I believe that's going to be a, a growing market for you. But as you look down the road, what makes you um, kind of the, the most encouraged? I mean, if we were going to look five, five years down the road for an organization like yours, what do you think it'll look like? Well, I would love to see carbon neutral aisles in grocery stores uh, or, or areas that are dedicated to regenerative, sustainable um, food products. Uh, and neutral would be part of a portfolio of of a series of products out there. And consumers would be would be choosing them because of not just because of their nutritional quality, not just because of their great their great tasting products but the, because they're also sustainable or regenerative or or low carbon and i, I would like like uh, retailers to get behind that that would be that would be terrific um and we we'd be part of that movement in the way that the organic movement was um you know grown and fostered in the 70s and 80s a, a carbon neutral or low carbon set of uh of food aisles would be fantastic that would be interesting so there's this, there's specialty aisles now, but why not have a carbon, um, you know, carbon neutral food aisle? That's 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 a great idea. Now let me ask you just a couple of quick questions and kind of wrapping up. But now you live you live on a dairy farm currently, correct? But you're not a dairy farmer yourself. I know I I milked cows for for five years uh, for four years. Sorry, forget. I mustn't over exaggerate for four years, and it was incredibly important part of my life and taught me a lot. Uh, I still, I mean, taught me that I know so. I I need to know so much more about farming, but it was fascinating, and I and I would I would never have give that up. Uh, but I, li I live on I'm, and also make cheese. By the way, I mean, so I'm a we make an artisanal cheese on the farm. But sorry, Roger, your question was. Well, my question was kind of both a, a vision for the future, but also your own experience where you are right now. And you're, you've, you're not, you're not actually a dairy farmer at the current time. So you're, you're, you have this organization. Tell me about your background. Are, uh, were you in marketing and other food products before you started doing this? No, I mean, way back, I was a chemist. Um, I've been an, an entrepreneur most of my life. Uh, I've worked in a number of different industries. I've run a nonprofit. Um, I have uh, consulted, um, but probably I can I can genuinely say the most important 
business that I've done is this business. Because if we can, through neutral, though it's just a small part of the overall story, but through neutral, help catalyze a major change in U.S. agriculture, that would be pretty amazing. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, you alluded to uh, before you came to America, where'd you come from? Uh, born in the UK, uh, okay. grew up in in farmland, um, but not as a as a farmer. Surrounded by surrounded by uh, farms, and uh, you know, and uh, I've been aware, you know, watching the hedgerows disappear in the UK, watching the biodiversity collapse. I mean, some. Some of the best thinking in this area, I think, is coming out of the UK. And I and some of my American friends get a little uh, maybe put out by that. And it's it's partly that the, the UK is one of the most biodenuded places from where it was on Earth. And they've got a lot of a lot to catch up on. So some of the best new thinking is coming out of that. And when I say new thinking, it's a, it's a lot of how do you apply today's technology and all of the all, all of the things we have and learn the very best and most of what we had in the past and how do we combine that? I think that's incredibly exciting. I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about how you make small and medium-sized farms relevant again. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, 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 we touched very briefly on, on Wendell Berry at the, at the beginning and, uh, you know, and Everson, he writes extensively about Earl Butts, who I think was Nixon's secretary of agriculture. You know, and he, I think he was the man who coined get big or get out. And we've relentlessly grown. Um, and that's not bad in itself, and I'm not suggest- I know there's no criticism there, but I, but no one has really spent enough time investing in well, what makes a smaller and medium-sized uh, farm relevant and profitable, and with that relevance and profitability, become come all sorts of other great things like uh, like a rural, a vibrant, genuinely vibrant rural economy. I mean, America's lost 50, 60 million people from the rural from, from, from rural America in the last since the turn of last century. You know, uh, it's it's funny. I'm going to show show my age a little bit here because when I was a kid, I was asked to be um, an MC for a series of meetings, and they said, "So you get up and you'll say a few comments." I work for a cattlemen's association then, and said, "Well, you make a few comments, and then you're going to introduce the speaker." And this speaker uh, was Earl Butts. No way. So <laughs> Earl. So I I was I was the MC. So I've now. You know, I've had conversations with Wendell Berry and Earl Butts, and I usually don't bring this up very often. But when people keep talking about what Earl Butts said, and said I know what Earl Butts said. I knew Earl Butts. I, I uh, actually traveled with him for a couple of couple of meetings, and then I've also met with Wendell Berry and <laughs> seen Wendell at his farm. So I'm, I'm, I may actually have a, a rare perspective to that extent that I've um, I've actually had contact with both Earl Butts you and well, Wendell Berry. May well be a, a set of one, n of one. I think in this thing, how fascinating! And and uh, we, I'd love to hear your insights. Was was it? This is a well, you know, I I I liked Earl Butts a lot. Um, he was he was a funny guy. He had a good sense of humor. He exaggerated. Okay, and, and I really feel like when he was out, he was trying to stir up the the farmers a little bit, and he did, and he stirred everybody else up, and they, everybody's got worked up about his comment about get big or get out. But <laughs> I think that he was at a at a point in time where it was so much that being a farmer was just a, kind of a way of life. Well, you farm because you always farmed, and everybody always farmed, and and so forth. And I think in a way, I think he was looking ahead, that there was going to have to be a certain amount of scale. He'd make you laugh, and he'd stir people up, and I think it was a, a wake-up call. I think it went too far. I think he's been villainized uh, after he was Secretary of Agriculture, and he had been dean at Purdue University and so forth. That's what he always did. He'd go out, and he'd try to get farmers excited about doing things. And little would he guess that years after he's passed, we're still having them mentioned by so many people. And and like you, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Earl Butts would come back today and he'd say, you know what? We got to find something going on here more than middle size and medium size and opportunities for small and mid-sized farmers. And that's one of the things that's exciting, I think, about what we're seeing these days is that we are people finding an optimum size. It's not just a matter of how big can you get because there's... So many people I've talked to that have gotten to the point that they've got thousands and thousands of acres, and it's like, 
well, they're not making that much more money. I mean, they still find they just barely get by. And one of the biggest problems, I think, in agriculture is that um, whatever size, you just barely have enough to keep it going. Now, if you own a lot of farmland, when you die, there might be a big estate. But aside from that, you tell the people that are making supposedly bringing in millions of dollars, but they're they're still making a modest salary after they pay all the bills because you can't go out and buy $500,000 tractors and the lease rates and have to pay $450 for a bag of seed corn that's been, you know, coated with all the things it is and treated and genetically modified and so forth. And all that technology is expensive. So I think a frontier in some respects, though, is getting these technologies uh, downsize them. I mean, you're going to end up finding that you can do things with a with an iPhone and a drone and a five acre organic farm that you you know are going to it's going to be magic and available to you. I think get I get think me out of this. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. <laughs> I think you know I'm not I'm not totally with you on the five acres and a drone. I mean, I I I come from technology companies. I've I've started technology companies. I've worked at Google. I've you know, I'm a believer in technology, but in this particular area, it, you need to be very, very selective about the technology. There is a role. I agree. You know, I when agree. the 56 million people left rural America, uh, maybe it was progress, maybe it wasn't. Um, but people forget what left with them, uh, and they don't really talk about that. What left with those 50, 60 million people? Was this forensic knowledge of of farmland and and the farm area, not just the farm, and, yeah. and not just the field, but that particular part of the field, and all of that knowledge has has left. And I think maybe one of the challenges, um, one of the opportunities, is to bring that knowledge back. And we, I remember you had a guest on a while back talking about um, artificial intelligence and, and natural intelligence. Is there a way of, of wrapping up that, that natural intelligence, a real understanding of a sort of acre by acre understanding of a piece of land and bring that knowledge back in, in a relevant and productive way that doesn't necessarily involve technology that is imported or $500,000 tractor or incredibly expensive seed corn that's made in a, it's, it's made 2,000 miles away or something. But, but, it, but I, it's knowledge rather than products and technology, if I can say that, and that's right. I I agree, and and you caught me. I was exaggerating when I said five acres and a drone, because, uh, but I do think there's a point that the technology, when you start, when you start adding the potential of artificial intelligence, for example, I've I've asked Chat GPT a couple of things already, and they came back pretty good, and and I could probably get Chat GPT to take take our conversation and and say. Make it sound like Wendell Berry was talking to Earl Butts instead of Roger and Marcus. And, and I think something would start coming back that would almost get away with it. But I think that when you start looking at the what it is there for us to know about the history of this piece of land or this part of the field or the, the microorganisms here and and try to make all that work, it seems like there must be a spot for AI to be useful, and it'll become more and more affordable and, and usable for us uh, at some point in time. Don't know exactly how to do it, but uh, you might, since you've got experience in that area. Well, I, I'm not sure I do, but I, maybe I could offer one small anecdote about the importance of knowledge. I was, I mentioned I was running a nonprofit for a while, and we were looking at low-cost medical, medical diagnostics, and I was at a, at a conference, and I was talking to a, a, a woman who was retiring as a um, anthropologist, and she'd been working in um, Australia for years. And when she was a young anthropologist, she had gone to Arnhem Territory, which is sort of part of the Northern Territory, middle north part of Australia, um, to study with a, what was then a very famous, uh, long since dead um, anthropologist who'd been on living with the indigenous Aboriginals for, for, for decades and decades and decades. And he said to her when she came, came onto the she said look would you would you please go into the women's camp and just write down everything that you can find out everything you know because when i first came i had access to the women's camp but now i'm i've i've been sort of accepted by the community and i, I no longer 
as a man, I, I was an outsider and I had access before. I no longer have access. So just, and so she wrote down everything about, you know, the, the plants and the tubers and the, and the lizards and, 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 um, and in this 30 or 40 years, you know, Land Rovers had all arrived and guns had arrived and various other things. And he compared her notes with his notes of 40 or 30, 40 years before. And on a sort of side-by-side analysis. And when they did this analysis, they reckoned that 30% of that indigenous knowledge had gone. Mm. In one generation, in one generation, Mm -hmm. 30% of that kind of forensic knowledge I talked about, about land and what works and what doesn't. And that's why we need knowledge. So we need to bring knowledge back into the rural communities in some form. And, And some of it may involve physical technology, but I think a lot of it involves knowledge and people because most of the skills uh most of the techniques and most of the um wherewithal are are already there it's the knowledge that's missing well i i agree i agree but i think it's the combination of the art and the science of it though as well and and so i'm really optimistic on on the science contributing I mean, I think that when we are getting to the point right now that, you know, information that we can get from satellites that are able to discover, I mean, we just another story was out in this last week or so that we're looking at certain diseases that they're able to spot from satellites and and get to the point that you can get it down to, you know, square meters uh, and identifying what's going on in the area, what's getting on with the land. And you might find it's a combination of using AI, using satellites, uh, analyzing the the microbiome. And it's simple for anybody to be able to start utilizing and applying these things. And before you know it, we're going to be getting back to some profitable, smaller, mid-sized farms that don't need to have lots of people and big equipment. And I really think that can happen. So I, I look at both sides of these things and I find reason to be optimistic. But I'm not farming. I just talk about it. So, <laughs> but you know, if I keep talking to you, I'm going to go get some dairy cows and see if you'll let me produce milk. <laughs> well, let's do that. Let's do that. I think that sounds that sounds like a great conclusion. Let's go. Let's, let's all go and milk cows. Well, well, Marcus, we should wrap up. It's been great talking to you. Tell me how people can find out more information about uh, neutral foods. Well, thank you for asking that question. Eatneutral.com, um, eatneutral, one word, eatneutral.com is a place. And there. there's contact information there. There's what we're doing. Uh, you can find out the stores we're in, whether there's a store near you um, or follow us um, on Instagram, Eat Neutral again. Um, but uh, that's probably the best way of, of getting in touch with us. So it's N-E-U-T-R-A-L. N-E-U-T-R-A-L, eat, E-A-T, E-A-T-N-E-U-T-R-A-L, eatneutraloneword.com, correct. So when, when did we learn to spell neutral? It was like in the third grade, and it was never, it never seemed right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're going to, if you're going to make a word that, that neutral, it should have been N-E-W-T-R-A-L, but it's not. And actually, that might be an idea, you should brand that as well, because I think that has a, a good connotation. Okay. Hey, this has been great. Thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on your show. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.